Look, I'm excited to be here tonight. Anybody else excited to be here? We don't, uh, we don't, we don't appreciate or say thanks enough to the guys who lead us in worship every week. And, and again, it's not about their glory at all, and they would say that, but they put in a lot of time and practice so that together we can come together and worship. Would you guys mind just, just giving them a, a thanks? Yeah. Appreciate Jeremy and the guys. I take it for granted sometimes that you all know what we're doing now. I don't know if that makes sense, but I take it for granted sometimes that, that we're all just always on the same page and that, that, that we all just know what happens now. And, and I don't want to do that right now, okay? I, I, in fact, I don't want to take anything for granted. So if you've just been joining us or if you're new here, let me take a second and explain what's happening. Here at Matthias' lot, we believe very strongly and teaching the Word of God verse by verse. We started out in Genesis. Yeah, that took us a while, 50 chapters. Uh, that, that was the very first book that Jason and I tackled as young preachers, and so uh, it was a great experiment that many of you got to participate in. Then we moved to the Gospel of Luke. That also took us a long time, longer actually than Genesis. Uh, and, and now we're in 1 John. And so what you're going to do tonight, what you're going to experience, is we're going to teach through verse by verse, where we left off from last week in 1 John. And I'm going to explain many of the pieces of why it is that 1 John writes, but I want each of us to be on the same page. And so, because of that, I don't know if you've noticed, John, it seems, has a lot of like one-liners. And I don't know if that makes sense, but like Genesis, each chapter is a story, essentially. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, each chapter represents a, di a different narrative. Well, for John, it seems like there's all these, like, cool, you know, one-liners that ultimately all fit together. But what I want to do is I want to recap some of the major verses that we've tackled first. And then listen, what we're going to do is we're going to step back from this amazing slide that I'm about to show you, and I think we're going to see some things. I think your eyes are going to be opened. When I did this uh, this week on my board and I stepped back from it, I was like, oh... That is incredibly cool. First slide. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, we saw that he wrote, The life was made manifest. Now, for John, he begins both his gospel and this epistle with the notion that Jesus was incarnated. Big word to mean that Jesus came in the flesh. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, that the life was made manifest revealed Jesus came next slide in John chapter 1 verse uh, first John 1 verse 5 we learn that God is light and in him is no what darkness at all that he is in fact in conflict with darkness next slide chapter 1 verse 7 we learn that through the blood of Jesus our sins are cleansed just read right hooked on phonics right that that, that our sins are cleansed a, a beautiful piece i love this next a slide in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. We learn that Jesus is our righteous advocate and the propitiation, say that four times, or name your son that, right? For our sins. Don't name your son that. In, in other words, Jesus isn't just our high priest, the righteous advocate, but that he took on the wrath of God, becoming, Scripture says, sin for us. And because of that magnificent 
dualistic piece of who Jesus was, which we will study tonight, you and I can be here tonight worshiping together. Next slide. Chapter 2, verse 9, we learn that whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And this is when your eyes should begin to be opening about John's progression. Next slide. Chapter 2, verse 17, we learn that the world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God, what's the word? Abides forever. If you've been with us, you know that in John, one of his favorite words is this word, abide. And it literally means to remain in. We're going to see it again tonight. Next slide. Chapter 2, verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, this was, a, this was a beautiful piece. And in fact, I don't know about you guys, I feel like I've learned more about the Holy Spirit so far in 1 John than I've learned a long time about the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, we saw that Christ anoints the chosen with the Holy Spirit, essentially setting them apart for the work of God. That word anointed, going back to the Old Testament and the way that kings would somehow anoint those who were underneath them to set them apart for the work of God. Next slide. 2.22, we saw that anyone who denies Jesus is a liar. Now this was a very poignant passage because it calls out not just the hypocrites, but anyone, are you with me? Anyone who denies Jesus is a liar. Anyone. Not just lives that don't match up with what you say, but anyone. And it's for that reason that many of the, much of the world calls us bigots and intolerant and everything else. As for me and my house, we're going to trust in what the Word of God says. And if the Word says that anyone who denies Jesus is a liar, then I'm going to go with the Word. Amen? Next slide. In a chapter 3, verse 2, this is what we saw last week. We are God's children now, I'm going to talk about that verse, but first, look at this. Everyone look at this slide. Everyone look at it. Here's a recap of the progression. I want you to see this, and I want you to start thinking about the things that you see, the clusters, the different nuances of it. Do you see anything? You're like, lines are good. I see numbers, right? Now, the first thing I see, next slide, a creative red circle here, represents the foundational statement for John. Everything for John, as he writes this epistle, is built on the fact that Christ was incarnated. And so if you're explaining or studying 1 John, you need to understand that everything is built on that principle, which is key in your understanding of the epistle, isn't it? Listen, a lot of times we focus on the what of the word. That's what we're addicted to. Just tell us what to do and what it means and what it does and, you know, just the what's, 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 what's. The beautiful thing about John is we see here the why. Everything he writes, and tonight is all going to be about the why, is that because Christ was incarnated, then everything else occurs. Next slide, next cluster. Oh, this is a trapezoid, I think. Is it? Shape people, is that a trapezoid? What, what's a trapezoid anyway? Is it, I thought it was like six sides. Is that wrong? That's a pentagon. Okay, so, so look at this. In this next cluster, do you guys see a common theme, right? Well, what do we see here? We see God is light, the blood of Jesus, our sins are cleansed, and then Jesus, our righteous advocate. 
So he starts out saying that Jesus came in the flesh, was incarnated, and then he builds that principle by showing the power of what happens because Christ was incarnated. Because Christ was incarnated, we see that God is light. He is the revelation of that. Because Christ was incarnated and is the perfect sacrifice, our sins can be cleansed through his blood. Because Christ was incarnated, he is the propitiation for our sins. Because Christ was incarnated, he lived a perfect life, therefore becoming our righteous advocate. Are you with me? Do you guys see that? Next slide. Uh, now, I added the yellow box there to go with the previous. This was supposed to be a smart moment on my part, right? And, and what this does is it connects the addition of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says in the Gospel of John, unless I go, then I cannot send the Counselor. And so because Christ was incarnated, we get the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Can I say an amen with you all? Now, this blue square, light blue, represents the tension. Now, the tension is created, first of all, by the land in which he's writing to. He's writing to a land, Asia Minor. Put up my map. Yes. Where's my map? Ooh, yes. Now, now we've, we've said a few different times, Asia Minor is, is like modern-day Turkey. In the lower tier there, John Locke tier, in the lower tier, all right, you see Asia Minor in biblical days. That's not going to mean a whole lot to you, but I want you to see, you see where the Black Sea is there in the Bible map, and then you'll see the Black Sea just north of Turkey. It kind of gives you perspective. The, the blue star, anyone know what the blue star is? Yeah, Jerusalem, Okay. So the gospel has traveled up in it. The reason why I showed you guys this is because when I think of Asia Minor, a lot of times I think of like something lower. And so I am completely not geographically inclined, clearly, but I wanted to show you guys exactly what's happening here. The gospel has traveled, and John is writing to a land that is filled with tension. Let me explain. John traveled to this land with other apostles, and they proclaimed the gospel. And people, by the power of God, were saved. And the movement of Christ was spreading like wildfire. But something's happened. There has been some tension in the land because individuals have begun to teach something that is anti-gospel. Uh, we, we call this group of people the Gnostics primarily. We'll talk more about them tonight. So John, as he writes, we'll go back to the last slide. As he writes the rest of this more life application, it's how do you deal with the tension that's in this land? Christ was incarnated, and because of Christ, all, of things, all these things become a reality, which make your reality now completely through the lens of the gospel. Let me explain. Last week, Jason, as he taught 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we heard, you are God's children now, which I have become obsessed with that verse in the last couple weeks. Here's why. To be a child of God now is to be both confident because of Christ. Are you with me? Like I'm a child of God. And because I'm a child of God and because Christ and his Holy Spirit are at work within me, I have a tremendous amount of confidence through the word of God to live this life, to glorify him. Are you with me? But the next thing is, is it is also 
humbling. So it's like we could say this statement, I am a child of God now. I am a child of God now. You see it? I'm confident because of Christ, and I'm humbled because of Christ. And so here's what John does, is he fights the tension in the land with the beautiful tension of the gospel. And that beautiful tension says, you, Christian, are God's children now. Confident because of the grace of Christ and humbled because of who Christ is. That is beautiful. How much has changed between Asia Minor then and America now? Not much. And tonight as we study this beautiful passage, we're going to see all kinds of connections and learn more about what John is writing and why he's writing. Right in front of you is this white thing called the Bible. Pick it up and turn to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 4 tonight. So I hope, no matter how many times you have been here or not been here, we are all in a similar page in a similar chapter tonight. Verse 4 of uh, 1 John chapter 3, are you guys all there? Say, I'm there. Yes. So energetic tonight, I like it. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, Put up this verse 4 for me. It's going to be helpful tonight for us to see Every verse for what it is. Because what we're going to do is we're going to break down all of the verbiage and all of the words. Are, are you guys with me? So the first word that we see is what? What do you got? Read it. Everyone. Now the Greek word is pas. Everyone say pas. It, it's an inclusive word, which is important because it includes everyone who fits in the category that comes after the word. So in this moment when he says everyone, and we're going to see another one here in two verses... This is a very inclusive statement of all those who fit in the category. Everyone who makes, uh, what's the word? Practice. Now, uh, when I think of practice, any athletes here? Okay. (laughs) Any cheerleaders here? Non-athletes? Just kidding. That was a dig on my sister. She's a cheerleading coach and long story, right? When I think of practice, when I think of practice, I think of two-a-days. And if you guys have, have had it gone through two days, what is, did you guys, sports, America, foosball, okay? Yeah. Okay, let me explain this to you. When you're in high school, they have these things called two-a-days. That means you practice twice a day. Some brilliant coach, Vince Lombardi, probably came up with the term, right? Now, practice implies this continual, I, I personally didn't like practice. I love games. Anyone was a gamer? Man, when you get to games and you're, you know, and you got the Kansas, you know, song, oh, what's the song title that I've been playing a lot? Carry On Wayward Son, that's been my new song this week. And that's like jamming in your, you know, in your pod, right, and sticks is rolling, right, and you're getting fired up, you're getting excited. I, I love games, but practice I don't like. Another word practice here, the Greek word is poieo, and poieo literally means the continual nature, just like this kind of this concept of practice like we understand, this continual nature of what? Of sinning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Remember, who is he writing to, church? He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. 
And so here again, like other times when he writes, he's not saying that you are to be sinless, is he? What he says is everyone who makes a practice of sinning, right? Now, sinning here is an interesting word. Uh, The Greek word literally means to miss the mark. And we haven't seen this word since uh, chapter 2, verse 12. In these four verses, we're going to see it six times. So he says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices, what's the word? Lawlessness. Uh, My first day of college, I remember it like it was uh, eight years ago. And um, I was going to McHenry College, and uh, I was in my Pontiac 92 Sunfire. It had racing stripes and a spoiler, right t- uh, lettered tires. It was awesome. I think Janae actually rode with me. My parents were behind me. We're headed to school. And, uh, and I'm listening. Some of you guys have heard of the band Bleach. I listened to, uh, I got a super good feeling the whole way there. Just because, you know, I was nervous, and I want to get psyched, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> I did that, seriously. And uh, look it up, iTunes, Google it, all right? And so I get to school, and you guys know the moment. For any of you who have ever lived alone um, or you've went to college, my parents, they unpack everything. And then, then, you know, we hug, and my mom's crying, and I'm, like, not crying, you know. And, and, um, and then you look out the window, and they're gone. And can you guys remember this moment? You're, like, looking around. And you're just like, like, I can do whatever I want now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're, you know, like Coach Pelker, yeah, I can speak into this a little bit, but I mean, I'm completely free. I got no rules. I got no, I mean, no, nothing. This is it. Like, for me, that was the first moment of, of freedom. Uh, my, my, my curfew in high school was early. Like, all of a sudden, I look at my roommate, Oliver, who was a knife-throwing fiend, by the way, almost took me out several times. And I'm just like, I'm just like dude, what are we going to do? Listen to this. This is beautiful. What I love about the gospel is how many times the gospel is completely counter-cultural. Culturally, that feeling that I had, I connected lawlessness with freedom. The gospel connects the law, meaning through Christ, and we'll talk about that here in a second, with freedom. What I love about the gospel is over and over and over, we see completely the opposite of what culture says. Culture says, you're free if you don't have any laws. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. Through the law, you're freed. Now, let me explain. My next question from this whole thing comes from this last part. If sin is, say the word, if sin is lawlessness, then mentally, here's how I think. I think if sin is lawlessness and sin is bad, then, then somehow is, is the law good? Because here, lawlessness is attributed to sin. You see what I'm saying? And, and, and all my life, or at least most of it, I've been like the law is bad, the law is bad, the law is bad, the law is bad. And then I remember a passage from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Have I come to abolish the law and the prophets? And he says, no. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Listen to this. Jesus embodies the law, becomes the law, fulfills the law perfectly. Are you guys with me now? Let me explain this with a hand graph. 
all right? Work with me here. In the Old Testament, we have the Mosaic Law. And we say here over and over and over, the Mosaic Law was given and provided to show what? To show that the Israelites could not follow it. They were incapable of following the Mosaic Law, which showed the distance between God and people and showed the need for a Savior. Are you with me? Now, the Old Testament was attributed with this thing called mercy. In other words, the Israelites deserved to die because they could not follow the law. But God had mercy on them and did not kill them, created a sacrificial system so that somehow there could be penance, if you will, for their sin. Now, Christ comes, look at this, embodies the law, fulfills the law, and because he fulfills it, he moves everyone, not from a period of mercy, even though we still experience mercy, but to a period of what? To a period of grace. That now we get what we don't deserve instead of not getting what we do deserve. Do you guys understand? Now, so, so we, st we step back from that and we say, is the law good? Is the law good? As long as you attribute it to the person of Christ. As long as Christ is now your example of the law. Because what did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees came and said, no, 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 like, here's the law and here's the law and here's how you need to follow this and this and this and this. Instead of just saying, Jesus. Jesus. He's our example. Nothing else. He is now the law. Now, guys, this is the point in this verse that I stepped back and I was just like, because you have to keep asking yourself, why is John writing this? Like, we've just talked about what he wrote, but why is he writing this? He has to be writing this because these Gnostics have diminished what sin is. Because remember what the Gnostics believe. They believe that the flesh is all evil, including the flesh of Christ. That's why they say Christ couldn't have been perfect, because he took on flesh. So listen what the Gnostics do. They then take that same principle from Christ and apply that to me and you, diminishing what sin is and saying that really in the flesh it doesn't matter because it's the spirit that's significant. John writes to a group of people and says sin is lawlessness. To a group of people that are hearing in their ear, hey, you know, that don't, it's not that big a deal. It's not, I mean, it's your flesh. It's, not the, it's your nature. Have you heard that a million times? It's your nature. Just diminish. Sin is lawlessness. Listen to this. Rebellion against God is what sin is. Your sin, Christian, now is anti-God. Can you see John writing this through a scribe, probably? Emphatically trying to get the weight of sin through to the readers. You must realize, Christian, the sinfulness of sin. It's rebellion towards God. And when you grasp that, 
then you appreciate the gospel all the more. Do you guys understand? He's not frivolously writing this. He's writing this to up the church's idea of what sin is. Not much different than our culture, eh? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times, a million, thousand, that's even a number. Well, it's just my nature. It's just my nature. It's just my nature. When will someone start standing up and saying, no, no, no. The Bible tells me I have a new nature. The Bible tells me now that I've been anointed with the Holy One. The Bible tells me now that something is happening within me to guide me. That now because of who Christ is, now I have a, a new, I'm a new creation. When is that person going to start standing up when people say, oh, it's just my sinful nature. It's just my, no, you have a new nature, Christian. Sinless, no. John has been clear about that. But a new nature indeed. Do you understand your sin? Rebellion, anti-God. He's writing to this group of people so that they feel that significance. And then he moves on to verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Keep this frame of reference. Put up verse 5. You know that he appeared, which is what? Again, he's coming back to what? The incarnation of Christ. You know that he appeared to what? Take away sins. I hope that when you come here and you look in the Bible, we worship together and we, we learn the word, that part of what you're doing is you're not just hearing some exposition of the word of God, but that you're learning better how to study the word of God. I hope that that's what's happened week, week in and week out. And one of the things that I always do, and you guys know this, is that I study by asking questions. My big question from verse 5 is, that takeaway must be pretty significant. What's the root of that? Greek word, iro. Everyone say, iro. Yes. Thank you again, this side. The pastors of the peace, you're, you're on it. I love it, right? Iro. Listen, this Greek word, iro, means to take away something that has been attached to something else. Now we're talking about your nature. If you want to talk about nature, now is the time. That Christ appeared to Iro to take away the sins that were attached to you and become them for you on a cross. And what does Scripture say? And in him... There is no what? So that happens, and Christ still remains sinless. Uh, a few weeks ago, I challenged you guys to, do, uh, to list out all the possible questions that you have about Jesus. List them out. Bam, 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 bam. And then to be begin to work through the scriptural answers of who Jesus is so that you know Christ. One of my first questions, assuming nothing is how do I know that Christ was without sin? What's the scripture? I say it all the time that Christ was perfect, but what are the passages that infiltrate? Well, as I was studying that and I was looking at this verse, all of a sudden, I began to see 
the power of a perfect Christ. You see, Scripture is clear that the sacrifice had to be perfect. The lamb had to be unblemished. But that's not the only part of the perfect Christ. You see, because when we stand before God, listen to this. When we stand before God, we're not just forgiven. We have to follow the law perfectly. If sin is anti-God, if sin is lawlessness, then can we agree, since God is light, he can have no part of darkness? Can we agree? Just nod your head. Yes, please. Yes, please. Right? So if that's the reality, then when he, as the high priest, presents us to God, he has to present us forgiven and sinless. How does he do that? He does it because he was the unblemished lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and he fulfilled the law perfectly, lived it perfectly, never failed, never sinned, never thought about sinning. He fulfilled it. And John has already written that Christ is the righteous advocate. So the beauty of a perfect Christ is that he is our unblemished lamb, perfect sacrifice, and our righteous advocate. Can anyone just say, what a Christ? That he is dually both of those beautiful things. This is why Jesus is the crux for everything that we are and do. A couple weeks ago I said that if you're talking with someone from another religion and you want to talk about morality, it's ignorant. Uh, that, that if you're uh, confused about something that has to do with Christianity and the focus is the glory of Christ and who Christ is, then you're headed down the wrong track. Christ is the crux of everything. Why? Because he is duly the unblemished sacrifice for the sins of the world and also the righteous advocate. Saying, because of me, this person is forgiven and allowed in the kingdom of God because I, as Christ, was sinless. Is anybody else excited about Christ? That's what we're trying to do here is preach Jesus. If you get confused about any of that, hear me now. It's because of that duality of Jesus that you and I stand a chance in this world, have any hope, and can experience the grace of God. And it's time that the church starts getting excited about Jesus. If we can't get excited about Christ, then what are we going to get excited about? A nice strum of a guitar or the perfect beat of a drum? No, we must not confuse the world anymore. Verse 6 says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. <laughs> no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I'll put verse 6 up. I want to work with this first part. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. When I was dating my wife, Heidi, have you guys all met Heidi? Gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Uh, very uncomfortable right now. We're having a baby at the latest next Tuesday, so we're really excited. Uh, tonight will be, uh, you know, kind of my last night preaching of just a dad of one, which is kind of crazy um, for me. And, um, <laughs> and when we were dating, I mean, just the real of it, like we, we met when we were 12, started dating when we were 16, girls, right? or something? Come on. Come on, past the piecers, you know what I mean? What are you guys doing? 
And, and so I developed this thing because the reality is, as a man, like my urges were growing. Like I desired Heidi in a great way. I knew I was going to marry her. I told her on the second date, right? Don't take notes on that, right? But that's what I did, right? The story's long. I saw a star. Long story. Ask me later, right? But, but, but I told her that we were going to get married. And my urge, like my longings for her sexually were growing. And I knew that once we went to college together, that those urges were just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so what I decided to do to focus our relationship on Christ was I developed this thing called the Joy Journal. Really cheesy now, I know. But this thing is what I require. I'm doing marriage counseling right now with five different couples simultaneously. It's pretty crazy. But all five of these couples are doing the same thing. And what it is, is we sat together for three years. At the end of every day, we have hundreds of pages. And I would hold the journal, and she would tell me her greatest blessing and her greatest struggle and the way that I could pray for her that day. And I would write all those down. And then she would take the book with neon green paper, and then she would journal for me all of those same things. And then we would hold hands together, and I would pray for her about what that need was that she had asked. And, I, and then she would pray for me, and we would ask Christ just to be the focus of our relationship. Let me tell you something. It's super difficult after that moment when you just focused your relationship on Christ to then struggle sexually. Now, the purpose wasn't prevention. The purpose was Jesus. And what you'll realize is that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. What you know and you realize is that the more connected you are with the person of Christ, the more that the Spirit is working you under conviction, creating that chasm of light and darkness in your insides that you can't run away. Do you know what I'm talking about? Look, 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 look. Some of you guys have struggled with sexual sin or whatever it may be. And in those moments, you want to pass God away because you want to experience the sin that you're indulging in. Because you know the closer that you get connected, the more that you abide, remain in, repent of the world, and turn towards Christ, the more that that happens, the more the Spirit stirs within you and light and darkness is revealed. Are you with me? So listen, if there's, if there's young couples in here, people who are getting married, bless you, people who are getting married, people who are journeying through life together, uh, young, young married couples, married couples in general, the old cliche is a couple who stays together, what? Yeah. Or a couple who prays together, stays together. A couple who stays together, prays. I messed that up. A couple who prays together, stays together. Well, the cliche, even though a cliche, is beautiful. Because the image is, is every night, not just like, all right, um, God, thanks for Heidi. Amen. You know, no. Which sometimes you want to do that, don't you? Because, you've, you know, there's been some tension, which never happens in my household. You know? Right? There, there's been some tension. And, and like, and, and every night we pray together. And I'll tell you, it takes a lot of humility. Because every night we have to come together and say, babe, what can I, let's pray together and invite Christ in. And it is so difficult to then struggle. Because Christ becomes the focus. Are you with me? And the focus of this first part keeps on, is that continual, repetitive sin. It's not that you will be sinless. It's that, it's that it guards you against this repetitive hamster wheel-ish type sin. The end of this verse. No one who keeps on sinning 
has either seen him or known him. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, for me, when those two things collide, seeing him and knowing him, and at first glance you're like, so does this, like, what if I haven't seen Jesus, right? Like, what, what, like John, even though he saw him because he said, I, I've seen it and I testify to it in the first parts of this epistle, he, he's assuming that his readers haven't all seen the physical Jesus. And in fact, the Greek word here of this word seen means to behold or gaze upon like the, the majesty, if you will, of Christ. Are you with me? So we're not talking about like physically seeing. We're talking about seeing, seeing, right? When the combination of seeing him and knowing him comes together, what John is saying in the form of an equation is that you can't keep on sinning because you're overwhelmed by the beauty of the gospel. Are you with me? Now, let me explain this. This is the whole reason why I encourage you guys to do the Jesus journey, the Jesus question journey. The more that you know of Christ as a Christian and the spirit stirs within you, the more you're enthralled with who Christ is. The more you sit back and you just, you marvel at his beauty. The more that you know him, the more you want to serve him. That's been my experience anyway. The more I learn about the Savior, the more I want to serve, the more I learn about who he is, the more I want to fall on my face in worship. Uh, a year ago, this summer, I stood before all of you guys and I confessed my lack of prayer. I said that I'd become a horrible prayer, if that's even the right terminology. I confess to you all that I was sitting in the hot tub of my accountability partner, a little bit weird, but that's the truth, <laughs> right? Both males. Um, and I, I confessed to him, I articulated to him, listen to this, I articulated to him finally what I was feeling as I just disconnected my life from prayer. I had started to rest completely in my prideful self, thinking that I could do it on my own. Let me tell you something. When I was on my way home that night, in my van, God, God said, encouraged through his word to pray one prayer for a month. And the prayer was, and many of you guys will remember this, the prayer was, God changed my heart. That's all I prayed for a month. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. I told you guys that I prayed that prayer 50 or 60 times a day. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. And through that whole journey, I was looking at scriptures and passages, watching Christ take someone and completely morph their heart to become more like him. After a month of praying that prayer, I sat back, listen to this, I sat back, and though still sinful, I saw how my marriage had become more centered around the gospel. I saw how my, my sharing of who Jesus was became more centered about his results and not my own. I saw how my preaching became more gospel focused and less about me. All of a sudden, listen to this, all of a sudden, not just did I know the scripture, but I was seeing it being worked out. I was watching him move in my life. I was beholding, gazing upon a spirit that was moving, and I knew the scripture. And when those two things collide, knowing and seeing him, what John says is, no one keeps on sinning that repetitive nature because you want to serve him all the more. 
because you're humbled by what he's doing. It causes you to, to fall on your face. You, you just want to desire so bad just to, just to love him and, and ask him to equip you to, to spread the gospel more and more. When that happens in your life, friends, isn't it so beautiful? My prayer before we even go on is that not just would you know him like the Pharisees knew, because they could spout scripture even though incorrectly at times, but that together we would see the move of the gospel and talk about it. Did you see that? Did you watch Christ here? Did you see how the gospel infiltrated here? That beauty is what John writes to this Gnostic infiltrated land will cause you to serve Christ with the empowerment of the Spirit. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Put up verse 7. Everyone just say righteous with me. Just, just kind of fun because it's Wayne's world, right? Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The first thing I think of is not the first part of the verse, but the back part. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. The first thing I think of is what about the people who just appear like they're practicing righteousness but really aren't? Now, there is a difference between practicing and acting. The word, the Greek word for practice, remember? Poi, A-O. It was that continual practice. Those who practice righteousness, they are righteous as he is righteous and the fruit is continually seen. An actor does what? An actor gets on stage for an hour or a three-hour play. Hopefully you've never been in one of those. I have. You know, repent and be saved, right? Right? But an actor just gets on stage, and they recite, and they morph, and they mime, right? They do all those things. But it's momentary, Someone who practices, he says, is the fruit is continually seen. But the beauty of the righteousness of those who practice it and not those who act it like a Pharisee is that we are only righteous because what? Because he is righteous. So can I remind you before we close up shop here with this last part? That your righteousness, friends, as he morphs you into a new creation, he says you are God's children now. And the process of sanctification that's being worked out in you is that process of him making you more like his son. Now to close, what does he say at the beginning? Little children, let no one deceive you. Stay with me here and let's end with this. Apparently, the Gnostic teaching had caused people to think that by them acting righteous, that gained them something. That simply by appearing good, that that made them and morphed them into something. And what John writes here, let no one deceive you, church. Sin is a wretched rebellion against God. You're born into it, but now he says you're born of him. Holy Spirit has anointed you. Let no one deceive you. You don't have to act righteous. 
Because he is sanctifying you, making you more like himself, so that you can be righteous because of who he is. No need to act, no need to play, no need to put on some fronts. He's saying, let no one deceive you, church. Listen to this. The beautiful tension of being God's children now is that together we can be confident in who Christ is. Christ can be the crux of everything. Everything that you hear out of our mouth is continually the grace of Christ, who Christ is, the power of Christ, how we're seeing Christ more at work in our life, while at the same time humbled as his children. And that tension causes a group of people to hate their sin. To hate their old nature. To want to run from the world and run towards the cross. You have the minister sin, haven't you? You've gotten caught up in something. It's become routine. And you would say that it's just kind of, it's just your nature. No, 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 Christian, you have a new nature. And that new nature is you're a child of God now. Oh, church, for us to hate our sin. For us to see it for what it is, as rebellion towards God, anti-God. Church, for us to see it as that. For God to open up our heart and show us how much we need him right now. Would that cause you to say, oh God, I desire to follow you forever as he breathes his word, and it becomes alive to us. Let's stand together, church. I want to hate it more than anything. I want to hate it when I go against his will. I want to hate it when I increase myself and decrease him. I want to hate it when I don't share the gospel to that person like I knew I was supposed to. I want to hate it when I really didn't love that person that I was serving. It was really more just about so people would see me loving them. I want to hate it. Anybody else? I want to hate it, man. That's what the scripture says straight from the mouth of John through the empowerment of the Spirit that we as God's children now are not to abide in our sin any longer but to abide in the cross, to abide in the gospel, to abide in who Christ is. So listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray that we will hate it. And we're going to worship, and this cross is here, and the reality is, is some of you tonight, with the reality of what your sin really is, rebellion against God, need to run from the world tonight and cling to the cross. Some of you tonight will need to come down here and just confess and pray. Some of you tonight will need to go somewhere with a friend or a brother and confess and pray. But together, we are God's children now, called to hate our rebellion against God. So let's pray right now that we together will hate it.
God, please take the worldliness, our old nature, and God, continual defiance of your will and your word. And will you remind us tonight that it has been crucified? That our old nature has been killed. That your death and your life is completely sufficient. God, would you make that real in our hearts tonight? God, would you, because only you can do this, will you cause a, a hatred in our heart for the ways that we're not like you? And God, would you cause a desire in our souls that would just cause us to run from the worldliness and cling to your cross, cling to abiding in you, knowing that when that happens, God, you are making us righteous like you are righteous. God, tonight in this church, as we respond to the word of God, will you cause our hearts to hate the ways that we're not like you?